Episode 8 of Good Grief, a podcast dedicated to having a real and honest conversation about mourning and loss. Each episode is based on a theme that we'll unpack with expert interviews, novice slice of life anecdotes, and where appropriate, some relevant cultural references. Full disclosure, at the beginning of 2018, I lost my mom to a very brief but brutal fight with lung cancer. She was 57. We were incredibly close, and I've been pretty lost without her. The experience really opened my eyes to how I've processed grief in my life and how our culture talks about death and dying. For now, this podcast is mostly a journal of my personal experiences. I hope that it's helpful for you because it truly has been for me. From what I've learned, this process can be excruciatingly painful alone, but I think if we take some time to share our stories and lend our ears, we can all walk away with some good grief. This week's theme, Tattoos. Sitting in front of my laptop in a tiny Hollywood sweatbox apartment, surrounded by a group of writers covered in cool tattoos, stacks of comic books, and the sound of Hollywood traffic, I start to read my weekly writing assignment. I'm in my mid-twenties, pipe dream number one has gone belly up, and this is where I have come to find hope and meaning. I get halfway through the first sentence and I make eye contact with my friend Lara, who stops mid-sip and lowers her can of Takati from her mouth, holding it gingerly between her thumb and index finger with her pinky raised, and says, Jesus, dude, really? Another sappy poem about working in a restaurant? Let me guess, there's some kind of really cool protracted food metaphor. This is Right Club. After high school, I moved to LA and joined a punk band. I believed in the band like some people believe in God. It was all I ever wanted to do bad enough to really sacrifice everything for. I was stranded in life with nothing but a beat up pickup truck, a job serving Chinese food, and a lot of unresolved angst. I had dabbled in the world of slam poetry in the early years of my musical career. Every night that I wasn't at band practice or playing a show, I was performing really mediocre poems at open mics from Los Feliz to Santa Monica. I was good enough and consistent enough to earn a spot on a regional team, and I actually got to travel to Chicago to compete in the National Poetry Slam when I was 20. At some point, though, I had to make a choice between writing and singing, and singing won out. The prospect of being a burnt-out musician in 5-10 to years was more appealing and about as profitable as being a moderately successful performance poet at a coffee shop in Culver City on a Thursday night. After the breakup, I reached out to my friend Rob, who ran a local open mic. He invited me over, and along with his two roommates, Lara and Sam, I was welcome with open pages. Together with our friend Massey, we built a weekly writer's workshop out of their apartment. We called it Write Club. Shut up. Don't be mad just because you didn't think of it first. The cost of admission was having your assignment finished. If you didn't, then you'd better have picked up a six-pack of Takati. 
Every week we do a warm-up exercise and then read and critique our assignment from the previous week and then dole out assignments for the next week. Write Club was like rehab for me. I was a decent writer, but pretty undisciplined. And like many decent writers in their 20s, I pretty much had one note. It was a good note, but it wasn't enough to build a career off of. Lara recognized this and was perhaps more transparent about it than the rest of the group. She did it because she saw potential in me, and she did it because if someone didn't, I would have leaned on the one thing I knew how to do and never developed. She did it because she knew that pressure makes diamonds. Working on my assignment, I often found myself just kind of writing for Lara. She frequented the same intersection of hip-hop and emo culture that I would draw from when I was getting lazy in my writing. She also came to poetry from stand-up, which meant that she had a no-bullshit, tough-as-nails approach to writing, performing, and feedback. She was also really, really fucking good. Write Club was not just important for me. We, we all needed that group at the time. And so, on the back of my right arm, about halfway between my elbow and my shoulder, I have the number 1110 tattooed diagonally inside of a thin box. It resembles an address because, well, it is an address. It's the address of Right Club. When I'm wearing an H&M V-neck shirt, the sleeve perfectly bisects the number, and as a result, I have perhaps one of the best displays of how the same tattoo looks before and after sun damage. There are three other people in the world who have this tattoo, and there used to be four. Over the last 15 years, tattoos have become wildly popular. 25% of Americans report having at least one tattoo, and that number jumps to 35% when you narrow the age group to adults under 39. The practice of tattooing in memoriam or grief, however, is a very old tradition. In fact, the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Maori, used a tattoo style called tamoko as a rite of passage and a way to tell someone's life story, often including deaths of loved ones and community members. The moko process is actually quite unique, and in a way, it's a lot like grief. Sharpened quail bones are shaved into razor-sharp chisels and dipped into a mixture of ash from burnt rubber trees. The tattoo artist would use a small mallet to actually carve a groove out of the skin so when it healed, there was a visible indentation along with the pigment. Like grief, it was known to be incredibly painful. You were a different person after it was done. Your marking was predominantly made up of negative space what was left after something had been removed. And even when it healed, it never really went away. Just feel it slip away into a While tattooing has changed significantly over the past few hundred years, the basics are still the same. Puncturing the dermis or second layer of skin and implanting pigment. While the trend of culturally appropriated tribal tattoos that mimic Maori designs is no longer in vogue, a new practice of tattooing with the cremated remains of deceased loved ones is beginning to gain traction. The process, as of now, is still pretty rudimentary and requires the consent of a willing tattoo artist to essentially mix a small amount of the cremains in with the ink that they are using to tattoo you. 
The challenge is getting the cremains ground fine enough so that it doesn't interfere with the tattoo gun or the ink or design. If you didn't know, and I didn't, cremains are actually quite coarse and resemble sand more than they do powder. It is so sad to say goodbye. I've always called the 1110 tattoo my sorority girl tattoo. No offense to sorority girls, of course, but when you and four of your friends all get the same tattoo as a permanent reminder of the bond you shared, you better have a sense of humor about it, or you, my friend, may have accidentally just joined a cult. The tattoo represented a finite moment that we all shared, and it's special because it's scarce. At some point, the lease on 1110 ran out. Lara and Sam, who were in a relationship, wanted to get their own place. Lara's mom had just passed away, leaving she and Sam responsible for taking care of her adult sister, who had suffered from a brain tumor, leaving her with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old. Rob moved in with me, and not long after that, Wright Club stopped entirely. I moved to Berkeley within a year. Sam and Lara moved to Sacramento. Rob eventually went to Oklahoma City, and Massey just had a kid and started practicing psychiatry. I missed Sam and Lara's wedding. It was my first semester at Cal during finals, and at the time, it seemed like an impossible thing for me to do. It seemed like the kind of thing that I would have time to recover for. I was very wrong. Floating around noisy heaven and most of the words are stuck in my mouth a few years later, I got a call from Sam letting me know that Lara had been given a terminal cancer diagnosis. Her doctors were talking in terms of days. He told me if I wanted to say goodbye, I needed to come fast. She had been battling cervical cancer for a little while, and although the past few years she had been in remission, it had returned. Sam had dropped out of his master's program and quit his job to take care of her full time. With my limited knowledge of cancer, I chose to believe that this was the moment in the John Hughes film where everything turns around after a bad scare and a nice long slow clap. Before you go see someone who is terminally ill, there is a warning, a formality really, that their caregiver usually gives you. They tell you to prepare yourself because the person you are about to see is a lot different than the person you last saw. In Lara's case, Sam warned me that her condition had deteriorated quite a bit. She wasn't the same Lara that used to pour me tiny rum and cokes, that used to try to make me eat her homemade chipino out of a Batman mug, that used to make me read Chuck Klosterman. It's a fair thing to warn people about. If for nothing else, it gives you something to focus on and prepare for. It's a bit of mental noise to take you away from the fact that you're about to lose this person. Before I fight, I obsess about my weight. I always end up weighing in about 5 to 10 pounds under, but obsessing about weight keeps me from being consumed by worrying about the damage that I might endure or the mistakes that I might make. What absolutely no one warns you about is how much they haven't changed. Though the skin is saggy and the words are slow, the person you love is far more here than they are gone. Sam met me outside and we hugged, and he began to give me a well-rehearsed preamble that he delivered to everyone who traveled to make their appearance at the Laura Ka'apuni reunion show. She might be confused, she might not remember everything, there are a lot of cables and machines, etc. The process had aged him decades. 
it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. He seemed really wise and thoughtful, but also sad and a little overwhelmed. Lara looked like someone dying of cancer. She was pretty much bedridden and had lost a ton of weight and, and was weak. Her detailed and intricate tattoos had lost their shape and her arms were quite literally skin and bone. But she was still Lara. She told me she wasn't going to die just because some doctor told her that she was supposed to, that she would take her time. She asked me about my job and my writing, and at some point, she stopped me and said, For a minute there, you and I were cool. I mean, you've always been cool, but you and I, we were tight for a minute. You remember? Then she got tired, and I watched Sam smoke and talk about Russian history. And those were the last words that she ever said to me. Evidence of tattooing in Japan dates back as early as 4000 BCE. And while Japan's cultural relationship with tattooing is complicated, their impact on the art form is indelible. The Edo era, starting from around 1600 AD, gave birth to what is more commonly recognized as traditional Japanese tattooing. Koi fish, dragons, samurais, and full body suits. Tattoos became popular with laborers like firemen and postal workers who felt that they embodied the powers of the animals scrolled across their body. In 1872, tattoos were banned by Emperor Meiji. While many people think it was because tattoos gave the appearance of gang affiliation, the emperor was actually trying to drive commerce with the West, and he thought that tattoos made Japan look like a barbaric and primitive economy. God bless capitalism, am I right? It wasn't until hundreds of years later that the Yakuza appropriated tattooing to show their devotion to a certain gang. Insert line here about if you outlaw tattooing, only outlaws will have tattoos. While the ban on tattooing was lifted in 1948, the stigma stuck. Due to some sloppy regulations, tattooing was put in the same class as cosmetic surgery, only to be performed by doctors, forcing tattoo artists to go underground and risking persecution for their art. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Japanese kanji lettering became wildly popular in American tattooing. It felt like every chad or frat bro had the symbol of strength on their calf. Lara's family was Japanese and Hawaiian. She had an incredible sense of humor about belonging to a long lineage of colonized indigenous people. She took the joke about as far as one can by getting the words stupid American written in kanji on the inside of her arm, accented of course by an adorable Hello Kitty. On her left shoulder, she had a perfectly punk rock sickle and hammer tattooed. On her right shoulder, she had a Jeremy Fish shoulder cap, an artist popularized by the indie rapper Aesop Rock. It was the perfect confluence of the energy that she embodied. And that is the kind of corny bullshit writing that she would have totally fucking hated me for. I was once working on an assignment for Write Club about my eating disorder, and in doing so, I decided to write out exactly how much I would have eaten in a day. A popular misconception about people with anorexia is they don't think about food when really food is all you fucking think about. And I could recall exactly what a day of eating looked like down to the last rice cake and baby carrot. When I started reading the list off, something that I hadn't planned on putting into the final draft, Laura absolutely loved it. 
She loved it because it was unfakeable, because I was using what I thought were the darkest, most shameful parts of myself to create something, and that made it unique, and that made it important. Lara passed a week or so after our visit. She was 35. Sam called to tell me. Her final wishes were that Sam travel and that her words be read by her friends at a memorial service. She wanted her remains to be scattered in Hawaii, her mother's birthplace. Sam thought it was just a way of her forcing him to go visit Hawaii. I was asked to read one of her poems and one of my own, along with 10 or so other writers. Standing in front of everyone, reading her words, I honestly had a lot of guilt at how estranged we'd become. I hadn't pulled away exactly, but I didn't really lean in either. I carried that with me for a very long time. And it wasn't until I was the one calling people, letting them know about my mom's death, hearing the same guilt mirrored in their voices, that I began to forgive myself. After the wake, Sam answered her wishes and went on a national poetry tour. But instead of reading his own poems, he exclusively read her work. He gave away her chapbooks. He traveled to the ends of his means to share her words with as many people as he possibly could. Till the comes to a crest. This has been episode 8 of Good Grief. Thank you for listening. If you want to read some of Lara's work or see Sam or myself performing some of it, you can click on the link in the show notes. Uh, I wrote a Medium article where I transcribe everything in this episode, and I also provide some cool media and content that you can go check out. Lara was a brilliant writer, and I highly recommend going and checking out what she accomplished in her short time here. If you like this podcast, please, please uh, rate, subscribe, tell a friend or two about it. If you feel like reaching out, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Blake of Today, or just email me at blakeoftoday at gmail.com. I say this every week. I am not a trained professional, just a guy with a fancy microphone who went to public school his whole life. If you or someone you know is suffering from depression, please, please seek the help of a professional. Today, I want to leave you with the words of Lara Ka'apuni, a poet and scholar from Los Angeles. I pulled this from a poem that she wrote titled Oncology Fight Song, which she wrote after her first bout with cancer. What I won't miss, being called a strong woman. What I will miss, all that time to read. You know what they say about foxholes? It's true, because I remember begging. You know what they say about foxholes? It's not true, because I don't remember God. Thank you, and take care of yourselves. Of the headlights, a passing car.